The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 4 this morning. The word of the Lord. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. The word of our God. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth From the mouth of our God. That's what the Lord tells us in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what Jesus models for us throughout his earthly life. But have you ever stopped to wonder how much easier it would be to live by just some of the words that come forth from God's mouth rather than to live by all of them? Now, I'm not presenting that to you as an invitation. Rather, I'm presenting that to you as a warning, a warning that's particularly appropriate as we come to this morning's passage. Because it would be very easy for us to take a few words out of context, like, judge not lest ye be judged, and make them the slogan for our lives. So that we never pass any discerning judgment on any other person ever. Now, the truth is, that would be easy but it would also leave us being unfaithful to the things that Christ clearly tells us to do. In fact, something that Christ tells us to do just five verses later in verse 6, which is part of this morning's passage. We are routinely commanded by the Lord to make all manner of judgments. Uh, Pastors and elders, for example, are called to defend the flock, that is the sheep, from the wolves who will come in and attack them. But that, of course, requires the elders and the pastors to make the distinction between who's the sheep and who are the wolves. Furthermore, just a little bit later in this chapter, 
Jesus will command all of us as his disciples, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That means you are required to make a judgment that the way people are presenting themselves to you are false in light of God's revealed will. That is, you must make judgments. Or, as we're going to see this morning when we come to verse 6, we cannot fulfill Christ's command in this passage unless we are willing and able to declare who are the dogs and who are the pigs. Otherwise, how do you know who not to throw the pearl of God's gospel before? Judgment is a necessary aspect of being a Christian. To follow every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, we cannot be a bunch of wet noodles who just go along with or flatter everyone whom we meet. On the other hand, we can fall off the ditch on the other side of the road. Uh, We can be people who are really focused on the truth of God's word. In fact, we're proud of our ability to discern the truth of what God says about faith in life and to apply it to other people. And we can use this as a mask that covers over the fact that while I'm saying I'm being valiant for truth, what I'm really doing is getting up on my high horse and condemning other people for their sins while pretending that I don't share in their estate. Uh, We can't choose either one of these paths. In order to be faithful to God, we need to take everything that God tells us and to put it all into practice. See, living by a slogan might be simple, but Jesus is calling us to a life that is rich, well-balanced, and which reflects our Heavenly Father's own character into this world. For that, we can't just pull out a couple of our favorite Bible verses while ignoring the rest. To fulfill our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must keep in step with the Holy Spirit by seeking to live by every word that comes forth from our Father's mouth. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four headings. First, measure for measure. Second, know yourself. Third, handle with care. And fourth, be wise with your treasure. Let me give you those again. First, measure for measure. Second, know yourself. Third, handle with care. And fourth, be wise with your treasures. We begin with measure for measure in verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Now, just as in modern usage, the word judged in the Bible actually has a broad range of meanings. Uh, Everything from discern, accurately assess, to condemn. Right? So we have to do is pay attention to how each of those words is used in each context. Even in this passage, they're going to be used differently. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus, when he talks about not judging our brothers and sisters, he's talking about not condemning them, 
not coming with a self-righteous spirit that looks down on other people as though I am the righteous judge so I can pass condemnation and point out all the things that they have done or are doing wrong. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. What our Lord means to condemn is a censorious and fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them, that is what our Lord forbids. I think that's good, but I want to add one more thing. I think the Lord has also forbidden us from having a judgmental attitude toward the serious, the grievous sins of our brothers and sisters when we don't look at them and say, but there for the grace of God go I. William Shakespeare wrote an entire play based on verse 2. So you got to know the Bible to understand Shakespeare. That's really true, by the way. Um, His play was called Measure for Measure. In the play, the local Duke of Vienna uh, needs to go away on a diplomatic mission, or at least that's what everyone's told, right? And while the Duke is going to be away, he appoints a very, very rigorous judge uh, in order um, to take charge of the city. He grants Angelo all his own authority to govern the city while he's away. But Angelo is such a strict judge that immediately he starts tightening up all the laws and how they're enforced. He condemns a man to death for having had sex with his fiancée before they get married. But things turn turn around, as you would expect in a play like this. Um, The man that Angelo condemns to death has a beautiful younger sister who's a virgin. And that younger sister comes to Angelo and pleads for her brother's life. And uh, they argue. They go back and forth. Angelo insisting, I'm never going to give in. i got to do the righteous thing. But in the midst of their arguing, he starts really becoming infatuated with this woman. And he offers her a deal. I'll let your brother go. I won't execute him if you will have sex with me. And this young woman says, well, I'm going to expose you now. Everyone's going to know you're a fraud. Outwardly, you're espousing this very rigorous sense of law. But in fact, you're trying to do the very same thing my brother had done. Now, Angelo quite shrewdly says, look, no one's going to believe you. I have a sterling reputation in the community. And besides that, everyone knows how desperate you are. You'll say anything. But unbeknownst to Angelo and to everyone else, the Duke hasn't actually left the city. He's disguised himself as a friar, a religious figure, and he's hidden the city. What he was doing was wanting to see how people in the city would behave when he wasn't there watching them. And so the Duke exposes himself, he reveals himself who he really is, and he sentences this stern judge to death, measure for measure. The very same sentence that he had passed on Another man, when he tried to commit the same crime, measure for measure, the Duke imposes that punishment on him. Then a fascinating thing happens. Two women, whom the judge had offended, actually plead with the Duke to show mercy rather than judgment. And, And 
The Duke, as he's listening to them, realizes how noble these women are, and he gives both of them grace and mercy in exchange. Those who pleaded for mercy receive mercy, but the judge, out of his own severe judgment, receives a severe judgment upon himself. Well, if you know the play, it's a comedy. So um, through a whole bunch of twists and things that are really interesting and worth reading and watching on screen, no one dies. It's a comedy. But Shakespeare actually, through this play, draws out the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. But there is, in fact, a, well, not the full meaning, as we'll see in a moment, but there is, in fact, a sense in which there's a poetic justice that God himself has wired into our hearts because God himself imposes it on people in our guilt. Jesus' words are well fulfilled in this play. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Only to realize we see that theme throughout the Bible. Think of the book of Esther. Haman, evil Haman, he erects this enormous gallows in order to publicly execute the Jew Mordecai. And then he himself is executed on that gallows. See, unlike the play, life is not a comedy for unbelievers. He actually receives the punishment that he wished to impose on another. And for those with eyes to see, Haman's end is more than impersonal poetic justice. Although the Lord never is never explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther, the whole book breathes of the Lord's invisible providence, how the Lord is governing everything. And Haman's execution is, in fact, God vindicating and defending his people against our enemies. Right? That's why judgment comes about in Haman's case. Likewise, when Jesus commands, judge not, lest ye be judged, and I can't help, I just got to fall back into King James here. It's just wired into us. When Jesus commands, judge not, lest ye be judged, He's not informing us about a karmic principle of the universe. Right? He's talking about the fact that the living God will personally get involved and bring judgment on those who make clear that they are not his disciples because we don't manifest mercy and grace in our own lives. To be true disciples of Jesus, we must be, coming, be becoming more like him. Such an attitude of heart which manifests itself in our tongues, is a natural and organic part of recognizing that I have been forgiven at the cost of the Son of God going to the cross. Let me slow down and say something just very, very direct to you. It's about me, but you can apply it to yourself. I have never, never in my entire life looked down on another person and condemned them while thinking that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Never done it. I have never looked down upon another person, condemning them, while thinking that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And beloved, neither have any of you. Right? That's what Jesus is calling us to realize here. As his followers, we are those who have been purchased at the price of his own blood, And therefore, we ought to look upon other people with mercy. To look upon other people with contempt is to forget that we have not been redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, 
but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a critical spirit which looks for and even seems to rejoice in pointing out the shortcomings of other people is incompatible with being disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling us to turn from that, but if we refuse to turn, we are ultimately making clear that we are not his disciples at all. And the only thing left for us is that we will pass into the very personal judgment of a perfectly holy God. Listen to our Lord's parable and consider how Jesus teaches us this very thing. This is from quite a bit later in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Please notice, this is one of those parables that Jesus actually tells us the point so that we can't miss it. So my Father in heaven will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And to point out the obvious, isn't this the very thing that we pray every week? Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now this raises a fairly obvious question. Um, since poetic justice seems to be deeply wired into us as human beings, and since the Lord so repeatedly, all throughout the scripture, calls us as his people to imitate our Father in heaven by being merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, how do we so easily fall off that into looking at brothers and sisters or our neighbors who are not part of Christ with a condemning spirit? Do you understand the... The, the question I'm asking, what, what, what we've already seen is so clear, why do we so regularly fall off on the other side and actually are quite tempted to look down upon other people and to condemn them, if not with our lips, 
at least in our hearts. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Jesus gives us the answer here, or at least part of the answer. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Why are we so prone to judge? Part of the answer is we minimize our own sin. Right? When I sin, I pull in all manner of extenuating circumstances to explain it away so it's not that big a deal. When I look at other people, I forget to do that. And so I, I tend to see their sins. I mean, let's be honest. Don't your sins look much worse when other people are committing them? Right? I mean, how could they behave like that? And then we have to look in the mirror and go, wait a second, how can I behave like that? Rico Tice gives a fascinating illustration of this point. Uh, Rico tells of a time around two decades ago uh, when a large group of college students in the UK were given apparently a very simple set of questions to answer. They were given a sheet of paper and Across the middle of it was a line. And they were told above the line, write down your own prejudices. Where are those areas where you look at people wrongly because you have prejudices against them? Below the line, write down those prejudices that other people have that you don't share in, that you don't have yourself. And quite predictably, above the line were all these trivial things. They were really all no big deals, little picadillos. And below the line, there were things like racism and sexism and ageism and all manner of prejudices that our society loudly condemns. Now, that shouldn't surprise any of us. But you see what the people were doing, these students, is they were saying all the big problems are out there with other people. Uh, They were not like Chesterton, who quite wisely uh, wrote into a newspaper contest when there was sort of a malaise feeling going on in society. And the newspaper said... Um, everyone's invited to write in a little essay, what's the matter with the world today? People wrote learned essays. And Chesterton simply wrote in, I am. But you realize how unnatural that is for us, how easy it is for us to locate all the problems, the big problems, out there, and in here, just little problems. And Jesus is telling us that's not right. This is why Jesus prescribes self-awareness, or as I say, simply know yourself, as one of the key tools for us in putting our own hypocritical and condemning spirit to death. We need to realize how serious our own sins are, to see our sins, frankly, as logs. They're big. They're significant. They need to be dealt with. And it's only when we do that that when we look at our Brothers and sisters in their sins, we see them as fellow sinners, not as someone that's somehow beneath us. Furthermore, the realization of the greatness of our own sins should lead us to be gentle and merciful toward fellow sinners. When I recognize the log in my own eye for what it is, the splinter in my neighbor's eye might still be a severe problem. It might be something that I am called to help them address. Right? I'm called to help my brothers and sisters in their sins. But I'm going to address it with a different attitude, a spirit of gentleness and care, 
Rather than looking to condemn them, I will come as a fellow forgiven sinner looking to help. Being genuine and committed followers of Jesus Christ necessarily, let me say that again, necessarily means that we ought to be growing in the extent to which we show mercy and grace towards fellow sinners. And an important part of that growth is the realization that we do not stand over fellow sinners as though we are in a separate category. That is, growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ requires us to grow in self-awareness about what we were like, what we are still like, and what it costs God to forgive us for our sins. Nevertheless, this does not mean that we are simply to ignore the shortcomings and sins of our brothers and sisters. That's that's the error if you say, judge not, lest ye be judged, and you never confront anyone over their sin. What you're really saying is, I don't want to have to deal with the tension, the stresses of being engaged in this difficult circumstance. That's not love. Love is seeking the sanctification of our sisters and brothers, even as we seek our own. So Jesus says in verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, Jesus does get right to the point, you hypocrite, right? If, If you're pretending that you're above your brother and sister, you're wearing a mask. That's not who you really are. Certainly it's not who you really were. And yet Jesus also makes clear that instead of ignoring our brother's sin, we are called to help him to deal with it. Once you recognize the log and you take it out of your own eye, now you're capable of helping your brother with the splinter if it's in his. You know, the Bible does say, am I my brother's keeper? But it's good to remember that those words came from Cain after he had murdered his brother. You, beloved, are your brother's and your sister's keeper. You have a responsibility for them. We just submitted someone to the membership of this church this morning. Yes, we're to encourage them to our prayers, to our words. But, you know, there may be a day that comes when you need to confront our brother or a sister in the church over some aspect of their life that is falling short of the glory of God in such a glaring way that it needs to be dealt with. But here's the key point. Before we open our mouths... We need to write over all of our efforts, handle with care. See, that's actually what this image is teaching us. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, very famous British preacher, was a medical doctor before he went to ministry. He makes an interesting observation here. He says, you know, the eye is the most sensitive organ in your whole body. If you simply touch an eye with a finger, it closes. I, I know personally I am very sensitive around my eyes. I don't even like when they blow that little bit of air in there to check the pressure in your eye, right? I got to work at it. Your eye is very, very sensitive. And that's the image Jesus is using for your brother's sin. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. There is no organ more sensitive than the eye. The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. So we are to learn here that criticism of others is a very delicate operation. That's a good thing to remember. 
Criticism of others is a very delicate operation, or as I say, handle with care. Um, think of a young mother. Um, snowing out there, so you've got to have a little bit of imagination. But in a few months, we'll go to the beach. And, and, and you see a young mother with little children, and one of them gets a grain of sand in their eye, just a speck. And the mother picks up the child. She very tenderly and carefully helps get that speck out while trying to cause no additional pain at all. That is how I am to help my brothers and sisters deal with their sins. With that same degree of tenderness, my goal should be to help, not to condemn. My approach should be as gentle as removing a speck of sand from a young child's eye. Yes, the confrontation of sin um, can be tough, I should add here, you don't need to confront every sin. It's appropriate that in the ordinary course of life that we allow love to cover over a multitude of sins. But you know, there are just times in your life where you know you should say something, you should get involved, and the only thing that's holding you back is you don't want the trouble and the the stress that comes from the conflict. But when you follow your duty and you get involved, you have to remember to get involved in Christ's way, which is to be exceedingly gentle. Needless to say, people are not always going to be that gentle when they criticize you. Um, You've experienced that, right? People are not always that gentle when they criticize you. I mean, frankly, don't you hate that? Don't you hate it when someone comes in on their high horse condemning you? I hate that. I hope you all realize what I just did. Wrong. I condemn the people who are condemning me. Remember how quick I am to um, give you all the extenuating circumstances in my life? I didn't think about the extenuating circumstances of that person at all. Well, we ought to think about it. Let me give you a second reason why people can be very critical. One of it is, we've already seen, they don't see the log in their own eye. But there's another reason. People who are relentlessly criticized in their lives, perhaps in their job, perhaps in an important relationship they have, uh, that criticism makes them feel unloved, devalued, unimportant. And they very well may criticize other people out of a vain attempt to feel important. That could be the reason why that person's criticizing you. And if you realize that, you'll realize quite quickly that putting that person down in place doesn't solve the problem. It's just throwing more fuel on the fire. Right? Um, condemning people for condemning me doesn't move us toward what Jesus is calling us to be in the church. So what can you do? Well, if you can slow down and look past those person's words, you can see the pain in their life. And you can help them in this way by showing them that in Christ... They are loved. In Christ, they are forgiven. In Christ, they are important. And perhaps only after you do that will you be able to actually work on the speck that's in their eye. Yes, you do need to help your brothers and sisters address the fact that their critical spirit is wrong. But if you show them they're loved in Christ first, and by the way, in doing that, you're going to show them that you care about them too, then perhaps you can come to them and say something like this. You must be really, really hurting 
to talk to me like that. Instead of arguing, can we sit down and help each other grow in grace? Well, if you've tried this, you know that is not easy. Right? Is Jesus calling us to something easy? He is not calling us to something easy. But beloved, your Lord and Savior is calling you to this. This is God's will for your life. Jesus is not calling you to something that's easy. He is calling you to something that is great. Because if you love people like that, you will change someone's entire world through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. This brings us to verse 6. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, scholars disagree exactly how verse 6 fits with verses 1 through 5. Jesus is obviously making a change in his emphasis here. But one of the things we can't miss is that verse 6 is a counterbalance to the idea that judge not lest ye be judged means we should just be wet noodles and never make discerning um, uh, judgments about anybody using our own faculties. After all, Jesus is saying, don't do something that requires us to say those people are acting like dogs, those people are acting like swine. Now, in modern America, some of you have dogs who are pets that live as well as many humans do. You love your dogs. Um, that is not the way it was in the ancient Near East. They, they were considered dirty and dangerous. And, of course, to a Jewish audience, you have exactly the same thing with swine. They were unclean by definition. That, that's who Jesus is saying. We ought to realize that some of the people in our lives... When you present them with the gospel, when you talk about the things that are precious to you about the kingdom of God and your relationship with the Father, they're going to act like dogs and swine toward that. They're not just not going to agree with you. That's not what Jesus is saying. There are people who are going to mock the truths of God. They're going to attack you. And Jesus says, you don't have to keep going. In fact, you shouldn't keep going. It dishonors the value of what Christ has done for us to present Christ's work to people so they can simply keep trampling it underfoot. Now, to state the obvious, we are not to call such people dogs and pigs. That is not the point here. You're supposed to discern their behavior and simply choose to stop casting the pearls of the things that God has given you before them while still treating them with great kindness. John Stott puts it well. Our Christian witness and evangelistic preaching are not to be entirely indiscriminate. If people have had plenty of opportunity to hear the truth, but do not respond to it, and I would add, Jesus is actually not simply talking about people that don't respond. Right? That, that's just someone that's callous. Jesus is talking about people who actually are turning against it and mocking it and attacking it. Right? If they stuff, stubbornly turn their backs on Christ, if, in other words, they cast themselves in the role of dogs and pigs, we are not to go on and on with them, for then we cheapen God's gospel by letting them trample it underfoot. Can anything be more depraved than to mistake God's precious pearl for a thing of no worth and actually tread it into the mud? 
at the same time, to give people up is a very serious step to take. I can think of only one or two occasions in my experience when I have felt it was right. This teaching of Jesus is for exceptional situations only. Our normal Christian duty is to be patient and persevere with others as God has patiently persevered with us. Well, I give you those words because I think John Stott is worth taking to heart here. But I want to qualify what he says in what I think is a really important way. When you stop presenting the gospel before someone because they're behaving like a dog or a pig, that does not mean giving them up, as John Stott seems to suggest. You ought to continue to pray for them. See, no matter how hard people are, no matter how much they ravage the church, think of Saul before he becomes the Apostle Paul, they are not beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace. And so you ought to look at this person who is acting in horrible ways toward the gospel and say, no, there but for the grace of God go I. And then plead with the Lord to show them the very same grace he has shown to us. That, that's actually the key thing, and I think that actually ties verse 6 together with verses 1 through 5. Your attitude even toward those who openly despise the gospel should not be one of looking down upon them, but one which says, I can't believe the amazing grace that plucked me out of the fire so that I am not like this. Lord, would you show that same amazing grace to her or to him? The St. Francis taught us to pray, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.